and I got a job writing commercials at this radio station for $75 a week. Was that a lot of money back then? That <laughs> was like no money back then. Yeah, because it's, it's still it no like money. What are the secrets of those extraordinary individuals that have achieved extraordinary success? Listen to their stories, discover their knowledge bursts, make those connections. Get ready. It's time to start moving forward. Hey, it's Nicole Benham here, co-founder of beyondtheinterview.com, and I'm your guest host on this special episode of Moving Forward. Our guest today is Luis Schiavone, an acclaimed journalist who has worked for the Associated Press, NPR, and CNN. She's covered everything from the civil rights movement to national disasters. She even covered the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. Louise also teaches business communications at Johns Hopkins University. Hey, Louise, how are you? Great, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on. So can you tell us what got you into journalism in the first place? You know, I always enjoyed writing, and uh, my first, go- my earliest idea of being in the world of journalism was when I was maybe four years old, and our house had all of the newspapers, and the Sunday Times was a huge thing, and I always used to say to my parents that I wanted to be the editor-in-chief of the New York Times. At four? (laughs) I didn't exactly hit that mark. During that period of time in the 60s when I was growing up, the news was still very much a part of life. Remember, our parents were right out of the World War II era generation. There was a, a tremendous sense of the world being a place that we all had to share as one planet, that what happened on one continent very much affected what happened on another continent. Uh, As we got into the late 60s, early 70s, there was the Vietnam War unfolding, and there wasn't a day that went by that we didn't watch Eric Severide and Walter Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley. We were very, very, very keyed into news, and I thought that was very, very exciting. Yeah, and I feel like things have been changing so much now. What changes have you noticed since then? Do you feel like People don't feel as connected. What you were saying about when one thing happens on one continent, you felt like it was your responsibility. Do you feel like that's sort of changed now? I think I think yes and no. It's a very interesting situation where, on one hand, because we have this social media, this mass media, we can see what people in South Africa are saying about our tweets here in the United States, what's Mm -hmm. going on um, in the UK, what's going on in Europe, what's going on in uh, the Middle East. You know, uh, it it was said that that the the revolution that started in uh, the Middle East was really the Facebook revolution, right? So uh, on one hand, we still really have a profound sense of mass media affecting us all and bringing the message to all of us. But at the same time, we have this very strange dichotomy of the more we have this, the more we have people trying to carve out their own space. And this is for me, and this is for my country and my nationality and my people and my social strata or ethnicity, no no matter what it is. I mean, not everybody feels that way, but it seems like we at least see people giving voice to that more than ever before. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I also noticed 
people are very reactive because they have the ability to chime in now through social media. Before it wasn't like that. We didn't have yeah, that. Platform. I just think is I just think the state of social media is horrible. I would really like to see the whole thing shut down. I mean, I use Twitter quite a bit. I like Twitter because I follow a lot of people in the news business and a lot of people follow me because I am in the news biz- business. And for the most part, people are very, very, very nice to me. Uh, but I think that you sort of, I think all people in social media have an obligation to set a tone. I really don't like the ugliness at all. And sometimes I think we'll be so much better off if we just didn't have it at all. Of course, that's a pipe dream because the genie is out of the bottle. <laughs> yeah. Especially Donald Trump's definitely out of the bottle. I mean, he, I feel like, makes it okay for everybody else to say whatever they want also. Well, you know, he sort of normalized it. But the truth is that there was a lot of ugliness out there in social media before he became our sort of tweeter in chief. Uh, there, there's This ugliness has been out there for at least 10 years. If you looked at YouTube or any of the comments on any kind of um, a social media, like any of the, the newspaper articles that appeared on the Internet, there would always be very, very, very ugly comments. And it just seems like. Uh, it's just exploded. And and to a tremendous degree, as you've said, I mean, uh, Trump has normalized it. But look, <laughs> you know, it's like they used to say to us when we were kids, you know, somebody jumps off a bridge. Are you going to jump off a bridge right after them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't have to be ugly like that. Yes, that is so true. I know you have a daughter who's now 29. And uh, when you started working, uh, employers didn't like that you had a life. How did you deal with that back then? Well, you know what was interesting? When I got out of um, graduate school, I went to Columbia University, the Graduate School of Journalism. Then I started looking for work, and I would go into these um, interviews, and people would ask me uh, if I had a boyfriend, if I was engaged, if I wanted to have a family, if I wanted to have a child. And I knew people, women, very well-known women, and I I won't name them, but well-known women who put off having families and having children, some of them for too long and then never did, uh, and put off the getting married, some for too long and then never did, who were very, very, very successful in the world of journalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it sort of made that deal with the devil, that if that was going to be a deal killer for them to be able to succeed in the world of journalism, then they would just succeed in the world of journalism, and then everything else would just have to take a back seat. So my feeling was when I um, started out in the world of journalism that I was just going to do my own thing. And I really felt that I would totally get to where I was going because I just had to get to where I was going. And in fact, um, Nicole, the first job I had before I went to graduate school, I worked at a um, small radio station outside of Boston. And um, sort of an interesting story, how I first got my, my start, I graduated in a recession and I got a job writing commercials at this radio station for um, $75 a week. Was that a lot of money back then? <laughs> that was like no money back then. Yeah, because it's, it's still it, no it's money. Still, <laughs> it's no money back then as it is now. Yeah. Uh, so, but I wanted to do news and they had a uh, news department. You know, those days, small radio stations did have news departments. All radio stations had News departments are very, very much a part of the community, which I think is really a loss that we see now in a lot of radio. But anyway, 
So this was a, a, a one station owned by a very well-known uh, media figure, and he owned like I think seven stations. Anyway, so one day the and I was you know fresh out of uh, uh, undergraduate school, and I was a big student rebel. And uh, one of the things that the radio station did was they had these uh, birth announcements from the um, for, from the local hospitals. It was like considered you know a real community radio station. So the woman who did it was the secretary to the guy who owned the radio station, and she she could have been a big radio star on her own, but this, it was sort of defined her to be this guy's secretary. But the one way she would use her voice, and she had a gorgeous voice was to do these birth announcements. And she would say, you know, uh, uh, today at, uh, you know, such and such general hospital, a bouncing baby boy was born to, you know, so-and-so, seven pounds, you know, eight ounces and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that is the most bourgeois thing I have ever heard in my life. And then one day she called in sick. And they said to me, Louise, you have to do the birth announcements. And I just thought, kill me now oh my god so, i can't i can't even believe that that's what was newsworthy <laughs> yeah, right. So, right so i thought well you know i i mean what one of my one of my axioms in life is if somebody asks me to do something if it's not you know too humiliating if it doesn't violate my personal dignity if it's not illegal i will do it just because i've never done it before so of course i said yes so i do this the birth announcements and um the news director said to me, hey, Louise, you have a really good voice. Would you like to be in the newsroom? I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. So that's how I got my break in the announcing birth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I went. From, so so then they, they brought me into the newsroom and I was really appreciative, except for the fact that I discovered that. So now so now my pay was like eighty five or ninety dollars a week. Congrats. I found out, yeah, it was a huge pay rate. And so, so then I found out that a guy in the newsroom with no more education or experience than I was making $120 a week, which is still not a lot of oh money, God. but it was not what I was making. So I said to the news director, I said, hey, um, you know, I, I understand that so-and-so is making this and I'm making you know, $30 a week less than that. How come? And they said to me, well, so-and-so is married and he's got to support his wife. You're not. And so I said, well, oh my God. I said, well, you do realize it's against the law to say that to me. And so, so he said, well, um, yeah, well, we're going to change that. We're going to change that. And they, they really basically, they gave me another $5 a week or something. So ultimately I went to the labor department in Boston, the EEOC office. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, you know, I really like this job. I love doing this. I don't want to lose my job. But I mean, what do you think of this? So I filled out this form. I said, listen, if if you have to use my name to co- go in there and I might lose my job because of it, then just forget about it. And they said, no, no, it's all it's all anonymous. I said, oh, fantastic. OK, so a couple of months went by and I thought, well, I guess, you know, I guess, well, this is what I have. And all of a sudden. An accountant from the Labor Department knocked on the door of this radio station one day and took up occupancy in the office of the radio station accountant's office for like three months. And and what ultimately happened was not only did I get 
you know, a pay raise, but also a lot of other people. And, and of course, people on the station were saying, who would do this? Who would go to the Labor Department? Isn't this awful? Imagine somebody doing this. This is terrible. And so it turned out that the guy who owned the radio station was paying everybody straight time over time instead of time and a half over time. And because the wages were so low, people worked so, so many hours over time. So the oh my guy, God. instead of like, he should have just paid me an additional $30 a week. So the guy wound up having to pay people really in the hundreds and thousands of dollars in back pay. And uh, then people were saying, you know, they got these, you know, oh, isn't this terrible? What happened to him? Imagine blah, blah, blah. But not, and everybody took their check that they got courtesy of the labor department and ran to the bank as fast as they could. And this was all because you went and said something. It was because I said something. And keep in mind, so this was before I went to graduate school. And this is, this is a pet peeve of mine, Nicole. I sort of feel like when you have skin in the game, when something is going wrong for you, <clears throat> whether you're a man or a woman, that you've got to step up. And I knew yeah, that was a period where people were being blacklisted anyway, you know, in the industry for whatever reason. I thought, well, you know, this is something that's going to get out and I'll be blacklisted. I might be blacklisted from my career. But I thought, well, I just don't care because this is wrong. This is a wrong thing that's happening. And um, so I'm glad I did it. But, you know, it was very rare for, for people to do that. So I was so I was glad and proud to have done it. And I, I think I did all right in spite of that. So then fast forward to, you know, postgraduate school. I still got these questions from networks. You know, are you going to get married? Blah, blah, blah. And I, I wasn't at the time. I wound up going to um, a radio station in um, Atlanta. First, I went to a, a state uh, radio news network, the Georgia Network. And they were lovely, really lovely, lovely people. Wonderful. I had never, I didn't know anybody in Atlanta I knew one person in Atlanta, but it was a great time to be there. This was, you know, in 79, and the civil rights movement was still very much alive. And it was also during the Carter administration. So so all those big news figures were, were very much alive, and a lot of stories were playing out in Atlanta. You know, there was the Burt Lance trial, and the civil rights leaders of that time were still very much uh, in play. Maynard Jackson, who was mayor of Atlanta, and then Andrew Young, uh, Julian Bond, his brother Kit Bond, uh, Joe Lowry. Um, and I uh, actually got to know um, Martin Luther King's father, which was just an amazing thing. Yeah, and, that's you know, a huge deal. I know when you were like, and when you're in graduate school, you especially in your you're in New York City, and you say, "Oh, I've got to hit it. I've got to get to a network," and then it's sort of the fates drop you into Atlanta, Georgia, which you sort of feel like is the end of the world, right? Yeah. But, um, but it was an awesome thing, and I'll tell you a great story about being down there. When I first started covering uh, the news in Atlanta. The um, I noticed that, and and a lot of the news conferences centered around you know civil rights issues, the Southern Christian Leadership Con Conference, and so I went to one of these news conferences. I, I went to many of them, and I noticed that at the end of these <laughs> news conferences that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference put on, 
they would stand up and cross hands and sing, we shall overcome. And the reporters would do the same thing. I would think, well, you know, it's not that I'm not sympathetic, but I can't do that. I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. So I would make a point of sitting in the back so I wouldn't make a big scene out of not participating. So (laughs) one week, Martin Luther King Sr. sits next to me in the back row. And the end of the news conference comes, everybody stands. And I would stand up, but I wouldn't sing. And so he grabs my hand and he says, you know the words to the song, don't you? Well, you know, everybody, every... Knew the words. Everyone knew the words. Every college radical knew the words to the song. And I said, yes, I do know the words. And he said, well, why aren't you singing? He said, you know what the words are, sing it. And he grabs my hand and he goes, why are you not seeing it? I said, well, it's not that I'm not sympathetic, but I am a journalist. I've got to be objective. He goes, you just have to sing the song. (laughs) You know, when Martin Luther King Sr. grabs your hand and commands you to sing, we shall overcome, you pretty much do it. Yeah, you do it. I always like really trying to avoid him. So, and then um, I was assigned to cover this. Well, I I had a lot of really great stories that I would, then feed to and and the stations that I worked for were great in Atlanta. You know, if you could get your piece on a you know the CBS radio network or on the Associated Press radio network, that was a really good thing. Mm-hmm. So I fed a lot of stuff to them because a lot of newsworthy things were happening. Then I was assigned to a hurricane, the first hurricane I ever covered. So I filed a bunch of material for the AP and for CBS, and then the AP offered me a job in Washington the, for the Associated Press Radio Network, and then that's how I got into um, Washington. So you, know, you, you start you start sort of low on the totem pole every place uh, you wind up at, and, and that's okay. I mean, that's when you're young and energetic, uh, that's what it's all about, and you have to be willing to, you know, make the trade-offs and be in there pitching and work. Working as hard as the next person, I have to say, every person I ever worked with at the Associated Press uh, worked really, really hard. So I had been working an overnight anchor shift, which was like, you know, included doing the, I, I don't know if they still do these on the Associated Press radio network, but um, the overnight newscast. So I got out at um, like five o'clock in the morning and I took a nap and I was going to meet my friend from graduate school. Uh, who was also living in Washington for lunch at this great place in Georgetown called Mr. Smith's. And this was, you know, the 80s, and there was no internet, there were no cell phones. So we're uh, having a, a burger at Mr. Smith's, and this flash comes on the television over the bar that someone had just shot Ronald Reagan. And my friend from graduate school, who was not in the news business, she said to me, Louise, You've got you've, you've to gotta call your desk. You've got to go and, and, and volunteer to participate in that story. I said, I am not going to do that. I just got out of work. I am exhausted. I am not going to do that. We're going to go to the movies and we're going to play Pac-Man. And she said, are you crazy? You have got to call this. So we went back and forth. So I finally called them. And I said, look, I'm just a couple of blocks away from George Washington University Hospital where they had taken uh, Jim Brady and and the president. I said, do you need me to do this? They said, yeah, yeah. Could you do that? Because all of Washington was paralyzed. The White House press contingent was up at the Washington Hilton with the president. You can imagine there's a tremendous amount of security in the city at that point because someone had just tried to kill the president. 
So I go down to GW Hospital. It's just driving rain. I had my gear with me in my car. Just driving rain. And in the at the time, there was a horseshoe in front of the hospital. And Larry Speaks, who was second in command to Jim Brady, he was there. So it was myself, Andrea Mitchell from NBC, and, Jim, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Larry Speaks. And so I got the first sound from the White House right after that shooting because I had called in and said, you know, I'm here. I have my gear. I can do it. Then I ran across the street to the, at the time there was a hospital uniforms shop. And I said, can I use your phone? I've got to call my desk. This, this, and this happens. And they let me. And so I, the desk said, can you go back to the hospital and, and wait to be for the briefings? So at the time, as I say, there was nobody had laptops or anything like that. So there were maybe, and the press contingent was not as huge as it is now. So a bunch of us, there were maybe dozens, uh, were sharing this auditorium. There were three pay phones at the back of the uh, auditorium, and we shared them. There were no fights. It was all very civilized. And at one point, I was phoning in, and my desk said, hey, um, CBS News is reporting that Jim Brady, the president's press secretary who was shot mm-hmm. in the head, Jim Brady has died. And I said, well, who is saying that? That's not accurate. And they said, well, you know, the Senate Majority Leader is saying that. And I said, well, good for him. That's not accurate. And did they said, did they end up reporting that? Well, here's the story. So CBS reported it. Then ABC, ABC reported it. You know, I called in again. They said, now ABC is reporting it. I said, look. I'm at the hospital. I'm talking to people behind the scenes here. Jim Brady is not dead. He's not dead. If you want to put that story out, get somebody else to voice it. But I'm not putting it out. I know that's not accurate. I don't care who's reporting it. Yeah, so they you're right there. They ultimately did not. And it, and it proved not to be true. And they were so relieved that they took my guidance on the story that I didn't yield to the pressure of the big boys reporting it. And I didn't have it. Well, I didn't have it because it wasn't true, that they, at that point, made me send a correspondent. Then I was off to the races at the Associated Press Radio Network. They're so lucky that they had you there to tell them that wasn't true. Right, right. But, I mean, it just goes to show you, you really have to stand your ground on what you know to be the truth, no matter what the circumstance, right? Right. It is true for all parts of life. Yeah, I totally agree. And also, I mean, a bonus was it, it sort of got you ahead and it get, and it gave you that credibility. And they saw, well, look, she has the truth down. Right. Exactly. So that was good. So that was a good thing. So you mentioned hurricanes. Uh, I know you are passionate about corporate responsibility and you developed a strong interest in a documentary about marine restoration in Scotland. Can you tell me some more about that? Yeah, thanks for asking me about that. It's my latest big thing. This is how I look at it, Nicole. I feel like, you know, all this talk about colonizing Mars and going to the moon and colonizing the moon, I feel like this is what we have, right? This is what we're working with. We're working with this planet, you know, planet Earth, and we have an obligation to make this beautiful blue and green marble as perfect as it can be. And so by virtue of people that I met on Capitol Hill was invited to do a series of distillery tours maybe three years ago. And one of the places we went was a distillery in the Highlands um, called Glenmorangie, 
they have a sister distillery, the Ardbeg Distillery in the Hebrides, which they have the they make the smoky whiskey. And Glenmore and Jean Ardbeg are part of the Moet Hennessy group, which is part of the Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton, yeah. Yeah, Moet Hennessy group. So this was like in 2014, and they said, well, you know, we're doing this uh, this thing. We're working on uh, regenerating uh, the marine diversity off of the shores of our distillery because the Scottish government and the European uh, Union is working on these protected marine sanctuaries, which this water off the Dornoch Firth, which is basically an estuary before the North Sea is. And so they were about to build an anaerobic digestion system, a hugely expensive system, which would process the effluence of the whiskey making, which is basically water, yeast, and the remains of the barley. Mm-hmm. And they were just pumping that out into the Dornick Firth, which they weren't the only ones. This is how everybody did that at that time. And what happened was if you've ever had a goldfish and you've ever overfed a goldfish and the next morning the goldfish is dead, it's because all of the organic matter in the goldfish food has uh, has sopped up all of the oxygen in the water or a good part of the oxygen in the water. And there's not enough left for the fish and the fish dies. So they call that chemical oxygen demand. So this Mm -hmm. uh, organic matter that was flowing out of the distillery was creating a chemical oxygen demand on the Dornick Firth. So their idea was to build this anaerobic digestion system, which they estimated would address 95% of the chemical oxygen demand issue and also uh, produce a methane gas which would become an energy source to re-power the distillery. And they also share the uh, methane gas also with the community of Tain, which is in the Highlands. And so they said the remaining 5% would be addressed by an oyster reef. They did the research on the Dornick Firth and discovered through extensive research that the oyster that lived in the Dornick Firth at the turn of the century, was the native European flat oyster. So they decided that what they would do was create an oyster reef. Ultimately, they want to put 4 million oysters in the Dornick Firth to oxygenate and biofiltrate water so they create a higher quality of water to where it really in place. Preserves, yeah, preserves all the living entities in the water. That's right. It, 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 it attracts <coughs> biodiversity. So we went back, uh, so I went back two years later and they were really far along. And then I wrote a piece for National Geographic and uh, was published in National Geographic and got to know uh, people associated with this, the scientists, the conservationists. They have a, a they have a working um, relationship, but what they, they call it a triple helix of the uh, conservationists, marine biologists and and business, which is uh, the Glenn Morangy Company and Louis Vuitton at Hennessy. To, uh, to pursue this. It's like a five or 10 year project. And they say, well, you know, it takes us 10 years to, to create our youngest whiskey. So we're comfortable with waiting. They said, you know, is there anything else you want to write about this? I said, look, I've done everything. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything else about it. I said, but the one thing I think is so beautiful up here, what about a documentary? They said, okay, we'll make that easy for you to do. 
Now, so my school, Johns Hopkins University Cary Business School, mm-hmm. gave me an initial chunk of money to take a production company, uh, Landmark Media, to the uh, to the Highlands, and we did a, a fair bit of shooting up there. We went all over Scotland. We went to Edinburgh. We spoke to people in Parliament. Uh, we spoke to people who are raising oysters. So we have a little five-minute stake in um, a demo reel that that we've produced, and we're talking to uh, people who are circulating this and who are interested. Louise, I think we have a clip from the documentary. Can you brief listeners on what we're about to listen to? Right. We're about to listen to Hamish Torrey, who's the uh, chief of corporate social responsibility for the Glenmorangie Company, and he's talking about the importance of a company being responsive to the environment because in that way it boosts consumer confidence and trust in and uh, affection for the product. Uh, we then hear from Bill Sanderson, who is the marine biologist who's involved in the project, and then ultimately we hear from Tony Legg, who is a zoologist who raises oysters and talks about the importance of oysters uh, in the system. So give it a listen. And the unique collaboration of business, scientists, and conservationists known as DEEP. This distillery is like a, a place of pilgrimage to many fans of the whiskey. But if they come here and they see what we're doing with our environmental enhancement, that will make them think that Glenmorangie is really doing the right thing. There are not enough oysters in the whole of the aquaculture industry to supply the four million that we need for this project. Okay, here, here we have the native flat oyster. There's not many of them left. They are rare, they're really valuable, and I can see the numbers coming up through at the moment on the screen. European native oyster, Austria edulis. We've come across this new technique that allows us to farm a species that we couldn't farm before. The great thing about oysters is that they are positive ecosystems providers, bringing the environment back to the condition that it, it, it should be. This is natural environment, this is natural things, and there always will be something waiting around the corner to bite you on the bottom um, and say, ha you didn't think of this one. Deep's challenge to align nature, business, and geopolitics. I love that. You know, it reminds me of this, this whole thing that you're talking about, about how people, they want to go to Mars and colonize there, but, you know, we can focus on what's here. It reminds me of this quote. I think it was something like, it always fascinates me how people plan their vacations more carefully than they plan their lives. Maybe it's because escape is easier than change. And I just feel like all people need to do is work on ways to figure out how to change things here and make things better here instead of trying to escape all the time. I think that's that's a huge problem that I notice. Yeah, that's a really that's a really great quote. I've never heard that before. And it's so true, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to me, the challenge is to make every day a day that you're so glad you lived, that you got something done, that you enjoyed it, that you saw that, that, that there was a joy, there was a beauty, there was a pleasure in your life because, because what else is there, right? I think people are starting to realize that now. I mean, you're so passionate about this project. And then I see... There's a lot of other journalists who focus on, you know, whatever they're passionate about, and it's and it's a positive thing. So I like seeing that a lot more than I like, you know, reading about news that sort of outrages you. 
Right, right, exactly. And then, you know, and then the other thing that I, you know, take a tremendous joy in, like my passion uh, is, you know, I have a child. I have only one child. Christina. my daughter Christina, right? And uh, <laughs> thanks for knowing that. Um, and she is an attorney, and um, she, I think, was the the youngest graduate in her law school class. And she has been doing family law. Uh, she started out representing victims of domestic violence, and really sort of doing the Lord's work in that in that field. I sure with a uh, with a firm called House of Ruth, which is a nonprofit, and they do really fabulous work. and And I just take so much joy in her accomplishment and her ability to um, be happy. I, years and years ago, when she was four years old, I was interviewing um, an author. I was uh, I was a co-anchor of a show called Newsweek on Air, and I was interviewing an author, and he said. He said something that I'll never forget. He said, you know, parents make the mistake of wanting their children to have more than they do. But that's wrong. What you want your children to do is be stronger than you are. That is that's the sweet spot is when your child has more strength than you have. (laughs) That is so true. My daughter was. My daughter always talks about how, like, whenever I I expected something from her, I would she would and she'd complain. I'd say, Christina, you have to be strong. <laughs> to this day, so I would say, I'm so tired of hearing you say be strong. But I mean, you have to be strong, right? Yeah, you have to. Do you feel like she's stronger than you? There are times when I like she really amazes me. I, I love the whole millennial generation. I have them in, in my classes. And of course, my daughter is a millennial. Millennial, and all of her friends are. And you and know, so I love. I. Uh, good for you, go, go <laughs> millennials. And you know, I love the millennial men and the millennial women. But I have to say, especially the millennial women. If it were not for the energy and the spiritual force of the millennial women, the Me Too movement would not exist. Oh, I and, totally agree with you. And and I love that about the millennials. And I feel the millennials will, you know, you talk about mm, the state of politics. I mean, I think the millennials really see the world with clear eyes, that they see that gun violence has just absolutely got to stop, that women have to be treated with equal respect. Yeah, I I was just going to say, you see it in all of the marches and protests and movements that have sort of arisen from just not being okay with the status quo. I mean, it kind of goes back to how, how I get, I mean, you're, you're kind of like the millennials of today. If you look at how you stood up for what you believed in, in your work. And like, that's, that's stuff that we do now. That's right. But in those days, I can tell you this, that you did not have a whole movement of people who were doing that. Yeah. You I mean, were the outcast who was doing that. I when was it wasn't the outcast. Okay. I was the odd man out. I was the person doing the crazy thing. I like, I was like, you know, what I was the one where people were saying, you know, what are you doing? Right. Yeah. But it felt always, so good. No. Right. I always thought I'm doing here's what I'm doing. I'm doing the right thing. What are you doing? Yes. So I love the millennials. And I also love the fact that millennials all feel they need trophies for everything. I mean, so my daughter will be horrified when she hears this, but 
you know, my daughter is not the greatest athlete on the face of the planet, but if you saw her collection of trophies from soccer and swimming, you would think that she was, you know, a triathlete, an Olympic triathlete. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it is so true. (laughs) I know. And I said, Christina, why do millennials feel like they have to be congratulated for everything? She said, I don't know, mommy, who made us this way? (laughs) Oh my God. That is so true because you know, everyone just wanted to instill self-esteem in their kid, no matter where they were in life, you know, and not to make, not to make people compete too much or to feel inadequate. So I feel like I never even thought about the trophies thing, but maybe that's what propel this attitude. Right, right. So, I mean, yeah, so, I mean, I take complete responsibility, but by the same token, I also feel that millennials have the power and self-confidence and vision they have because of their parents also. I mean, I mean, obviously a lot of it, a lot of who you are is just who you are, but you need to have that support. And I think that is something that generationally the now much sort of loathed baby boomers were able to give to to this millennial generation, you know, there's first of all, and primarily the confidence that they are loved, right. and that they are supported. And, you know, really, you really get, it's all so elementary that love is everything. And if you have a whole generation of people who have a confidence that they are loved, it is going to make a massive difference in the world. What do you think is something that millennials need to realize? What do you think they need to work on mostly? Like, is there a common denominator that you've noticed among students or even your own kid? This is what I would say. I love the fact that millennials love their downtime, love their leisure time, love their leisure life. (laughs) I think they have to understand is that there are times when you have to work more than eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, you know, work is work is work. And for instance, like I, I do a lot of things, as you said at the beginning, like I am a full-time senior lecturer here at Hopkins Carey Business School. And I do fill in newscasting at NPR. And I also do shows at Sirius XM. And I, and I write and I'm working on a documentary. I am busy all the time, but I love every single thing I do. And I wouldn't change any of that. And I think, I think the challenge is to find the work that you take the most joy in and just be resigned to the fact that you are really going to work hard. I think that millennials uh, sort of have to get into that rhythm a little bit. Yeah, so no, I, I've, I've noticed that too. And it's true. I do. I mean, I do love my leisure time too, and I look forward to it. So I get that. But, but also it's true. There's no way to get ahead and really get to a level where you feel that you're successful unless you push yourself to do work sometimes more than eight hours a day. That's the only way you're going to get results. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a growing process. And well, we'll let's see what happens. I mean, the thing I do love about the millennials is their respect for the environment. And I think that is a really important thing for our planet, really at this juncture, especially. So I love that about them, too. And in their defense, they do want to spend more time enjoying the planet. And maybe that's where we boomers went wrong is that we spend so much time inside working that we didn't really have a as rich a sense of how enjoyable the planet is as our as our kids do. And so, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, that's some great insight, too. 
Louise, how can listeners find you or learn more about your work? So I'm on Twitter. Thank you for asking me that. I'm on Twitter at Louise Schiavone, L-O-U-I-S-E-S-C-H-I-A-V-O-N-E. And I'm on LinkedIn. Well, anyway, thank you so much for your time and for a great interview and for all the insight you shared with us. It was really helpful. And I loved I loved what you had to say about millennials. And I, I know I learned from that. So Nicole, thank you so much. Great to talk to you. I, it was it's really been fun. I hope we can do this again sometime. Yes, I hope so, too. Thank you so much. All right. All the best. Now it's time for you to move forward and unlock the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and Bali Solutions, LLC. All rights reserved.